Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? Vulnerability and the power of breath. If you listen to our last show, you heard Wayne Brown and me talk about his work to help in particular men understand and be open to vulnerability as a key skill for leaders in the 21st century. The reality is that anything that we think may have others judge us has the opportunity to make us feel vulnerable. Yet the power of vulnerability is massively misunderstood. The reality is that when we get vulnerable, Other people get interested in us. It is the biggest thing that pulls somebody else in to what you are experiencing. And when we can get vulnerable, when we can tell the truth, when we can be honest, when we can be genuine, that's when other people like us the best. That's when other people get the most curious about what's happening over here where we are. That's where we have the opportunity to really move and engage other people. And when we find ourselves in a place of vulnerability and it makes us feel like hooked or it makes us feel scared or it makes us feel (laughs) vulnerable, we have the opportunity to stay in that place to stay present to vulnerability and to use our breath to calm ourselves back down so that we don't get thrown into our amygdala, our fight, flight, or freeze center in our brain, where we can no longer actually be genuine and honest. Because the only thing that part of our brain cares about is, am I safe? And the reality is being open, being honest, being genuine, being vulnerable has us feel unsafe because others might be judging us and our brain equates the possibility of somebody else judging us, well, and judging us negatively as something that could threaten our life because that's all that part of our brain cares about. Am I safe? And so we feel unsafe when we have these opportunities to be vulnerable and as Wayne and I were talking about yesterday, as my guest and I are going to be talking about today, like that's where the juice of life is. When we can let other people in, when we can be honest with other people, whether it's in a business setting or a personal setting, that's when we have the opportunity to really connect and to really enjoy what life has to offer. So that brings me to my guest for today. I am so excited to introduce you to Julie Dean. So I'm going to tell you about Julie Dean, and then I'm going to tell you just a little bit about who Julie Dean is for me. Julie Dean is a singer-songwriter from Charlotte, North Carolina, where she has been a voice coach for over 20 years. From technical training for singers of popular music styles to heart-centered voice work, For anyone struggling to find their voice, Julie's mission is to show that every voice has value and worth. Julie's mission is to show that every voice has value and worth. Specializing in working with recovering injured voices 
to adult beginner singers who always wish they knew how, to helping professionals maintain their vocal strength. She has added personal coaching for finding voice confidence in recent years. Known as a versatile singer and musician, Julie is in demand for a variety of musical events around Charlotte, both as a solo performer or with her duo, Beauty and the Blues. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, me too. And as I said, I was also going to speak for a minute about who Julie is for me. So Julie is my cousin. Julie is one of my all-time favorite humans on the planet. And I was never blessed in having children of my own. I have two amazing stepsons, but I don't have any kids that belong to me. And so Julie is this interesting thing in my heart. She lives... And here I get to get vulnerable because I get moved when I think about how much I love her. For me, she is somewhere between a daughter and a sister. That's how she lives for me in my heart. She's one of my great loves on this planet. And if you have the opportunity to listen to our show regularly, you have heard her voice. She and her partner, Keith Serpa, do the intro and the outro for the cost of not paying attention. And so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to listen to that full song in a little bit, but so that I can pull myself back together a little bit more, I'm going to have Julie have an opportunity to talk. So Julie, tell me, what is something that you have become aware of that people are not paying attention to either consciously or unconsciously? And what's the cost of that? So to continue with the idea of vulnerability, it's something that you had said was maybe some people confuse what it is and what it isn't. And, but maybe everybody could identify that vulnerability feels a little scary. And so maybe we could all agree on that. And for me, it is like the beginning of any kind of heartfelt work and any heartfelt relationship, any connections that you want to make. And I heard or read something like confidence is a byproduct of when we are able to be vulnerable and it takes courage to be vulnerable. As a voice teacher, I would say that most of my clientele come to me with of whatever their goals are. One of them is always, I would like to have more confidence with my voice when I sing or when I'm presenting. And so I've worked over the years in a number of ways on performance workshops and building confidence. And so when I read that quote, I was like, oh, of course, that makes so much sense. That's the gateway to having confidence is there's this element of fake it till you make it that exists. And there is no getting over the fear. You just do it with fear. Being vulnerable is I'm going to do this thing that's really important to me. And that may mean that people will see me and that can be scary. And ultimately, every time I've allowed myself to do that, it has been either exhilarating or brought me contentment or helped me gain confidence in some way. So I think that's really important. And the more I learned of what confidence is, learn more what confidence isn't or what erodes confidence. And those things like the judgments that we have, striving for perfection itself erodes confidence. And all those things come back to what we're afraid of what people will think of us. And oftentimes there are books that are written on it. Don't give a flying whatever. Oh, how do I do that? How do I not give all the whatevers? Right. And that's a practice in and of itself too. So, okay, I'm going to do it and I can't right now care. And ultimately what I have found for myself and what I recommend to my students and my clients is whenever you catch yourself, a judgmental thought about yourself or a judgmental thought about somebody else, stop it. Just notice it. Go, that's not helpful. Because the more we judge others, the more we will judge ourselves. And that's where our loop of fear gets caught know that we judge others. So of course, everybody else is judging us too. I noticed and I discovered that one night, one of my first open mics ever when I got a scene of music in my third musical life. And I thought, oh, this is what I've heard of open mics. This is what this is. So I'd watch someone get up there. And this was like kids to adults in every genre. Someone would get up and sing a song and I'd be like, oh, they're so good. I don't think I want to do this. 
I came up and sing a song I'm like, oh, they weren't that great. I think I could do this. And I just kept comparing myself to whether I would do this or not based on the talent or the what I perceived is not talent, that it was up there. And then after, I don't know, an hour of doing that, because this was like a two and a half hour event, I was exhausted and I thought, I'm not having a good time. And I thought, what would it be like if I just enjoyed everything or just took it in and did not compare myself? And it was a much better experience that last <laughs> hour and a half. And that was my first experience of trying this idea of, oh, what if I just stop? And stopping being judgmental is pretty hard, but the idea is that you just notice it, right? You notice it and go, that's not helpful. Okay. And just so you can practice getting the thoughts away. I love that. And we spend so much of our life, either judging ourselves or judging other people or comparing or thinking, if that were me, I would not do it that way. Or how could they possibly be doing it this way? And then that thought is often followed by, oh my God, they're such an idiot. And we spend so much time in that headspace. And Whether we're talking about just ourselves as we're moving through life, whether we're talking about ourselves as a performer, and when you think about it for a hot minute, we're all performing at some level a lot of the time. At work, we have a presentation that we need to give, or we have to talk to our boss and it makes us anxious. We have to talk to that other person that we need something from, but they're always such a pain in the butt. And we need to talk to our spouse or our partner or our kids or our best friend or our parents or our whoever. And so we think about it and we rehearse it like a performance. But we usually do that on top of an already existing belief about how it's going to go. If I know I get to talk to Julie, A, that's how that sentence comes out of my mouth. I get to talk to Julie, not I have to talk to Julie <laughs> because I, it, that's never how it occurs to me. But there are other people in my family, in our family, that I would say I have to talk to them. And there's certainly many other people in my work and personal life that would go in that I have to talk to them category, which is then on top of a belief that I have about that person. It's a judgment that I have created about that person. And then therefore, how everything having to do with that person is going to go. And so I love this idea of what if I just at least in the moment, okay, I'm going to get to, I'm going to decide that I get to talk to this person that I have historically found challenging, but I'm going to let all that go for right now. And I'm just going to get to talk to this person and we're going to get to have a conversation, but I'm going to let go of the judgment and the preconceived ideas and then just see how it goes And I'm going to pay attention to my voice, a hundred million reasons that I wanted to have you on today. But one of the reasons is because you've been doing such interesting work around the power of our voices and how we use our voices, both for good and for evil, and how our voices can serve us or get in the way of what we are trying to communicate Yeah, I've sung my whole life and singing for me was reflected recently and realized recently was likely a way for me to regulate my nervous system in a very chaotic childhood. And singing always felt safe for me. Being up on stage always felt like a relief, which I know for some people would be the opposite because, oh, finally someone was listening to me and everybody else was quiet in the world. And this new part of my work, because I've been teaching voice lessons for over 20 years now and started in that classical realm as I was taught. And then when I realized I started teaching the year American Idol premiered. And so very soon people were wanting to sing anything and everything. And I had a kid come in and wanted to do an 80s power ballad for an American Idol audition. I was like, oh yeah, cool. 
I don't really know how to help you with that. And so <laughs> that spurred me on to my training and working with contemporary music and the voice science field, understanding how the voice works differently in different genres of music. And as knowledgeable as I have been about the instrument itself, and probably subconsciously realizing a connection between our emotional system, our nervous system, always identify there's a psychological component to singing, that fear of being up in front of people. And some people would rather die than public speak. And here we are like singing, which has got an extra possible judgmental factor on top of it. And some of us just can't help ourselves. We still have to do it. So that feels like that's something is overpowering our fear in that way. But it wasn't until I started doing my own personal work on healing trauma, complex PTSD, which often people in chaotic childhoods come away with working on my how I relate to the people closest to me, my partner, my parents, then in the healing through that, those relationships, it was all about my work and noticing how the throat closes up. You know, the reason why we have these expressions, cat up your tongue, I got all choked up, is when we are having an emotional moment that causes us to either tear up or get afraid is the muscles in our throat actually clamp down to make it harder to breathe, much less say anything. The vocal cords are the gateway to your lungs. <laughs> so if those muscles clamp up and your vocal cords are starting to close in, that means you don't breathe. Not very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it's not helpful when you want to say something really important or when you want to sing something that, that your heart is desiring, right? So that's why I've been in the last couple of years really doing a lot of the nervous system work and training that I've done personally, I've taken to learn it from an educator or coach's standpoint. So Duke getting a certified in, as a trauma support specialist to really see it outside of myself as, so I could recognize it in others when people's voices are getting clamped down. And so I use a lot of nervous system regulation exercises, breathing exercises, actually body movement exercises to help the nervous system go, oh, it's okay. I can do this. I can do this. I can make this sound. I can make this sound. And to me, that's whether most of my clients are singers or wanting to explore singing in some way. And some people just want to explore what their voice can do or strengthen their voice if they're a public speaker. And when I say most people come to me saying they want confidence, what I've also realized in my experiences with all of these people throughout the years is that many people are dealing with a self-worth issue that is different than building confidence. And so much of that self-worth can be developed or thwarted when we're children and when we go through trying experiences and whatnot. So being able to give folks a place to talk about what they're afraid of away from the people that they're afraid of is <laughs> And then practicing speaking the thing or practicing reframing the thought that's in your head and saying out loud, giving power to the words which I thought of when you were using the example, or I get to talk to, or I have to talk to, is that power of language. And it pairs with the power of actually forming the language, which is your voice. So when you say out loud, I get to, <laughs> and to hear even like the tone of your voice, like you're saying like, oh, I have to talk to my mom today. Oh, I get to talk to my mom today. <laughs> yeah. The tonality. Pitch. Yeah. And it's like framing it in a particular way, then your body can feel it, can feel that pitch change, can feel like, okay. And even if it's a little bit of a fake it till you make it, your body still gets the energy of, oh, I get to, which implies to your body, this might be exciting. And it might be okay. And I love the word exciting. And I love the word exciting in this context because I've done a little bit of singing. I've done none as a solo singer. I've sung in choirs and choruses and that sort of thing. And I have a belief about, especially about my singing voice, that it is too low. I had the opportunity to attend a workshop that Julie was leading in early October, very end of September, early October, that was magnificent with a group of women on a beach. And it was really about like women finding our voices at the beach, which if you've ever heard me talk about my happy place, man, it is the beach. So that was a wonderful experience. And one of the things that got revealed to me over the course of that time is that not only do I have this belief about my singing voice, which I'm sure is 
born by the fact that when I was singing in choruses and in choirs, sometimes there were not enough lower voices. And so I was put with the boys. I was put with the men because I can hit a lot of the tenor pitches. And so that got transformed in my brain as it's too low. And (laughs) I am extremely far away from a soprano, which also in my brain became like, that's how girls should sing. Girls should be able to sing those breathy high notes that I can't begin to sing. I can sing the deep baritone. No, I can't do a baritone, but I can sing significant tenor notes. And when our family would always get together at Christmas, our extended family on our mother's side, which is how technically we are related. Our mothers are sisters. And our family would always get together at Christmas. And I would often either sing a harmony line or bump down an octave a whole octave sometimes from where the through line of the song was, where the musical line was. And so that all got put into this mesh in my brain called my voice is too low. The end of that sentence is my voice is too low for a girl. It's not that my voice is too low for the world. (laughs) It's that my voice is too low for a girl. You're a girl and that's not right. And I'm a girl and that's not right. That's not okay. That's not good. There's a problem here. And one of the things that was so magnificent about being in this workshop with other women was in part letting go of that idea that there's a problem. Yes, my voice is in a lower speaking register and my singing voice is definitely in a lower singing register. And that's not a problem. That just is what it is. And there are things about certainly about my speaking voice that are actually an advantage to me. And so I think this whole thing about how we use our voices and what we think about our voices, and obviously these ideas about my voice being too low, these got created in the first time I remember singing really in a group of people. And I'm talking slowly because I'm also thinking and remembering, I think was the seventh grade. So I would have been 11. I was 11 when I started the seventh grade. That's relatively speaking, that's relatively young. (laughs) And then I've been holding on to that idea. As longtime listeners know, I am 57. As we are recording this, I will be 58 in 11 days. Please send no gifts. Send out all the gifts. (laughs) You can send me notes. I'd love that. If you actually know me, send me flowers. But I've been holding on to this idea if we do that subtraction really fast, for 46 years, (laughs) that there's a problem with my voice. And so I'm really curious how many of us have some preconceived ideas about our voices and how powerful is that, that part of what you get to do is dispel us of those myths and then empower us around something new. I would bet almost everybody's got something, some story about their voice in some way. Brene Brown calls the wounds that we get as children around the arts are creative scars. And that it is very unfortunate, but very commonly the case that our creative wounds and scars come from parents and teachers. At no particularly fault of their own, <laughs> not always. But I think this, I don't know, people these days are a little bit more sensitive to language and things that they say, I think, than our parents' generation and certainly before. But it doesn't, for the most rewarding clients, work that I do is with clients who were told when they were young that they couldn't sing, that they shouldn't sing, that they were too loud, that they should mouth the words in choir or that they got, I have one lady who came to me when she was 70 and she said, I remember they told me I had to sing in the bluebird choir and we all knew the bluebird choir wasn't the good one. And so from that moment, when she was nine, she thought she wasn't a good singer because of that. And so no matter what the reality was, she held on to that. And this is why therapy is really good for everybody. I'm like, why do I have to talk about past? Because all the shit that went down happened when you were a kid. <laughs> you got to figure out what was that source? How old was I? How tall was I? Let me rewrite that story. How do I get in there and find that? 
So let me go ahead and debunk a couple of myths. Great. <laughs> Everyone can sing. If you can speak, you can sing. How well you do it, that's relative. We could all maybe be in agreement that so-and-so-and-so have good voices. And then we'd find somebody who's, I don't like their voice. Right? Does that mean it's not good? Yeah. I don't know what is good, what's bad. I know certainly in my opera days that they would not have listened to Dolly Parton like I did. Right. My Dolly Parton fans don't want any part of listening to opera. So it's like preference. It's what you're exposed to. It's what you like. It's what you don't like. What you like and what you don't like doesn't mean that something is good and bad. But I think people make a common comparison that is the link that is somehow true for them. And especially in the arts, because it's so subjective. And unfortunately, in the arts, at least for the last 20 some odd years, we've had competition shows that says, oh, you win. You're the best singer. It's not like there's a relay race and someone broke through the thing the fastest. It's there's it's subjective. And a lot of that was people voting from home because the boy was cute or right. <laughs> sang a long high note and everybody loves a long high note. I think that has done a number psychologically on folks who had already some issues about their voice. And especially if they wanted to do something fun, like sing karaoke or just singing happy birthday. I can't tell you how many, how many people have said, I know this might sound really crazy, but could you help me sing happy birthday? <laughs> so many times. I'm like, it's not crazy. Right. And I've also analyzed it from a music theory perspective. It's a weird song. <laughs> it does not make sense to the ear. And there's a big old octave jump in the middle of happy birthday, which has four lines. And that's hard for most people. <laughs> Right. And I think the way that our, so I was going to say the most rewarding work that I do is with adults, often in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who come and say, I was told I couldn't, and I always wanted to. Is there a possibility? Now, sometimes that is hard work because sometimes we've got to do muscle building. This laid dormant for a long time. So the muscles are like, oh, this is how we do this. Sometimes we're doing ear training because if someone was told they couldn't sing, maybe they didn't match pitch well, then they never learned it. You can learn it. And it's best to learn these skills as a kid. That's when your brain is so pliable. It's really helpful for music and language. So if there's a kid in your life who you think, oh, they can't sing, get them to a piano lessons or a voice teacher, do some pitch training so that they don't have to live with that their whole life until they decide when they're adult they want to. I got sidetracked. I wanted to say what? I also wanted to debunk tone deafness. So oftentimes people will say, I can't sing, I'm tone deaf. And it's very rare for people to actually be tone deaf. I think four to 7% of the world population is tone deaf. And if you're tone deaf, you don't like music. Music sounds like a cacophony of random sounds. So if you think you've been told or you think you're tone deaf and you like music, you are not. You just might have to do some pitch training. And that is a lot of ear training. And it's a miracle in and of itself how we make sound. The ear tells the brain, oh, tell the vocal cords to stretch that tiny millimeter space. And then we've got that pitch. I think scientists still don't really know like how that works. How, do, how does that happen? It's crazy. So all of these places of beliefs and stories that we've created as children about our voices. And then in comparison, I think today, maybe kids are having easier time, especially because like your belief, my voice is too low for a girl. Art society today is saying, what's that? It doesn't matter. There's no difference, which is really helpful. And I will say, if you had wanted to have a career in choral work, Tenors are the least built up section of choirs. You would have had a lot of good work. <laughs> Damn, I missed that opportunity. And let me also say the grass is always greener for everybody. So for me, who I feel pretty good about my voice, I'm a singer and people like it, blah, blah, blah. Still, when I hear my voice on a recording, I go, who's that chirpy little butterfly? <laughs> and while you wanted to sound like a Disney princess, I probably do and don't want to. I want to sound like this sexy disc jockey, which I think you sound like. <laughs> so we all have our thing. We do. This grass is always greener. My husband, Jonathan, had one of his cousins over for dinner the other day, and she's a delightful young woman and her skin color and her hair were so magnificent and she's 21 so comparing myself at 57 to somebody who's 21 there's never going to be any cheese down that tunnel and yet here i was comparing myself to the beautiful 21 year old and 
I have relatively straight hair. As I age, it seems to be getting a little more body and a little more sort of natural curl to it, which is lovely. Thank you very much, nature, whatever that is. But I've always wanted curly hair. And I think we often look at other people who are what we are not. And we think, oh my gosh, that must be so great. So two episodes ago, I had the opportunity to talk with Sean Duffy. And if you haven't taken a listen to that episode yet, I would suggest that you maybe visit it. It's called The Nonlinear Path. And he was one of the coolest, hottest, most popular boys in high school. Junior high and high school. We went to school together. We did not go together. together. (laughs) We went to school together from the seventh grade to the 12th grade. And I am not 100% sure that if you had asked him any of those six years, do you know who Janine Hamner is? If he would have really had an answer. I was not in his orbit. And yet we recorded a podcast together. He is now an artist. And he talked about how uncomfortable he felt with the idea of being popular and what a geek he felt like and how unattractive he felt. He felt like he was skinny and weird looking. And so we all have our own stuff and there's no way to know what's going on in somebody else's head, else's heart. I got to participate in a workshop maybe three weeks ago and someone was saying, we're always coming into somebody else's play in the third act. We don't know what's gone on before. We don't know what their stories are and what has shaped them. And many of us have so much around the arts, around speaking, around singing, around getting up in front of a group of people and saying or doing anything. And earlier in this conversation, you were talking about the difference between confidence and self-worth. And I'd like to come back to that a little bit and explore there for a minute. When you are getting to work with clients, how do you help them parse that out and figure out what is an issue that I'm having because I don't have experience in doing this and therefore I'm just learning and it makes me feel nervous because I don't know what I'm doing. And how much is that feeling really connected to my feelings about my self-worth. So right now it's a little trial and error because it's a new realization for me. So I'm kind of, as I take each person experience and see what's needed. So I think for me, what I'm noticing is when I'm with someone and they're using a lot of shoulds, then that tells me that they've got a lot of preconceived notions about what something should be, not, and they're not accepting what is. And that it, it usually should follow shame. So I, and I find where shame is present, that's where self-worth is low. And again, I'm pretty sure that's all of us until we uncover it. Or God bless if you grew up in a really healthy household, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That 1% of the population. The other thing is perfectionistic tendencies. They're focusing on one little thing. So my experience is people who are obsessed with getting the right pitch don't need to be obsessed with getting the right pitch. They're on pitch. And almost always those people have some experience in their young life where someone remarked about them being out of tune somewhere. And I think that also the general public doesn't know words. (laughs) There are some statements, there are phrases that are in the ether. Oh yeah, you're off key. Or they're like just phrases that people... That was really pitchy. Yeah. They're phrases that they've made a whole movie series out of it. There's so many phrases out there that people don't actually know what they mean, much less what effect it's going to have on somebody. And there's so many misconceptions around that. And they even got like a voice nodes, nodules on the vocal cords. They would not make you sound like the bass that she did in the movie. Make you sound much different at all. Except when you sing, you just can't reach the highest notes and the lowest notes in your range. So the opposite, actually. Singing in key, I'm in the key of C and all my notes are in the key of C. If you're out of tune, like on a pitch, you sing a pitch and one goes slightly flat or slightly sharp. That doesn't mean you've sung out of the key And that doesn't mean that you sing out of tune, right? The expression, I sang a note out of tune and I sing out of tune, two very different. Very different. (laughs) But people will create it as if it's an all or nothing situation. And the idea of singing flat or sharp occasionally is because we're human and 
we're powering our voice with airflow and we're pressurizing airflow in a very specific way. And if our pressurization of airflow changes when we didn't intend for it to, or our mouth creates a shape that we didn't intend for it to, that can make a pitch go out of tune slightly. And most people don't notice that when you're watching someone sing. And most people don't even hear it when you're listening to someone sing. But the person singing will hear that, no doubt, when they listen back to the recording of their singing, because they are not listening for vulnerability, connection to the audience, emotion. They're listening for mistakes. Did I do it exactly right? Did I do it perfectly? And there is no such thing. And we live in a society that kind of says, sure, there is auto-tune. That's in the singing world. That's our nemesis for creative people who want to be artists of true expression and connectivity because it makes our sound seem unreachable. And I'm always telling my clients, do not try and create an acoustic sound based on an electronic sound you're trying to mimic. Even just a voice and a microphone, you try and mimic that, you're missing a whole link acoustically produce the thing that you hear on the radio or in your CD or whatever. And so when people have really tight holds on perfectionism, that means that they've got some wounds about everything has to be just right, or it's not safe. And so that tells me that that's not just confidence that we have to say, you're okay, you are worthy as is, no matter what sounds you make. So let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about breath and the way that we can use our breath and how we some how we sometimes forget to use our breath and i know you've been doing a lot of work in this domain breath work has been yeah it's throughout my whole life i think one of the big misnomers about singing is i hear this a lot from beginners i've heard if i learn how to breathe right i can sing and i always say you're doing a good job so far cuz you're here <laughs> right you're still on the planet Right. There's not a whole lot that's different in singing. Now, if you're doing some extraordinary kind of singing, like operatic singing, which is very far away from our speaking voice, does create larger breath systems, lower flow out of your body. It creates a different thing you have to do and be conscious of. And when people sing, one of the greatest fears is that they're going to run out of breath. And I tell people all the time, you need to breathe. You just stop and breathe. That means you jump in a phrase or two later because... You got scared, then you jump in a phrase or two later. And it's the fear itself that keeps people's breath irregulated, not because they actually are running out of breath. And sometimes the fear is so great that what happens is they don't actually use enough airflow in a phrase as they're singing because they're trying to reserve it in case they need it, which then phrase after phrase actually creates the feeling of running out of breath because they are now almost hyperventilating. So that is very common. I want to pause you there for just a second. And how often do we do this in life, y'all? We have a thought about something. It's going to be this way. I'm worried that this is going to go this way. This conversation is going to be hard. I've got to fire somebody or I've got to put them on a performance improvement plan or I've got to have a conversation with my boss or somebody who is accountable to me. Ah, that's going to be hard. Or there's these two people and they've been having conflict and I've got to get in there and have a conversation with them about it. And, oh God, it's going to be wretched. Or I've got to call my mom or whatever that is. And then it is. <laughs> and then it is. And yeah. so we're so afraid we're going to run out of breath in singing that we create it that we run out of breath in singing because we are actually hyperventilating because we're so afraid that we're going to run out of breath. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It of. is a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is so much of what goes on in life. Okay, that was brilliant and awesome and continue. So I'm gonna tell you an experience I had this weekend and then I'm gonna tell you about all the exercises that I didn't use. <laughs> awesome. And why it would have been helpful if I had. <laughs> I, I performed my whole life in lots of different situations, big concert halls, little tiny venues, blah, blah, blah. So I was co-hosting a house concert of a musician that was coming through Nashville. And I was at my friend's home who was our host for the night. And there were probably about 40 people there. And one of the, one of the ways we sell house concerts is it is an intimate experience with an artist. You don't have to go to the big arena. There are going to be 40 of you. You're going to be in a tight little circle around the artist. 
nor Jane Struthers, our artist, she asked if I would open with a few songs. She's been one of my songwriting teachers. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. I would be honored to. And I was excited and looking forward to it. And I was also playing host that evening. So I was like taking people's donations at the door. And so I had a little bit of a job. So I wasn't just the artist for the night. So my focus was a little split. And so as I got up to make some announcements at the beginning, then I went into my songs and I did not create enough space for that. For a transition from one to the other. And so when I sang my first song, I just noticed my breath was very irregulated and it felt like I couldn't breathe. And I realized, and of course, because I know I was like, oh, I'm not exhaling enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> when there was a moment to like take a breath, I was like, I tried to exhale like everything in my lungs so that I could take a fresh breath and continue. And still my voice was shaky. I was doing a couple of songs that I don't typically do out because I don't sing a lot of my songs out when I'm gigging at bars and restaurants because they're intimate songs. And then it occurred to me like, oh, I don't have practice singing this song in front of people. When I finished that song, I was like, okay, the next one will be easier. (laughs) It wasn't easier. And then I was like, why is everybody so quiet? And why am I so loud? And while I'm singing a song, it's amazing, the brain. Yes. And the thoughts that go through it. And still my voice was shaky. And I was like, okay, so not anything particularly horrible about it. Like people who don't know me as a singer would think it would be fine. And I realized like, oh, for the last couple of years, I really only sing in front of bars and restaurants where people are not close to me, where people are not paying attention to me half the time where people are clinking and talking and we're having, we're singing over a roar sometimes. And I often have a partner with me. So I am co-regulating my nervous system with him because he's super relaxed and groovy all the time. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is what's happening. So I recognize cognitively what's happening. And still I did not stop and do the thing that I knew I needed to do, which was like, (sighs) I just needed to stop and take a few deep breaths. And I could have, it would have been an audience that would have, I could have said, y'all, I got to regulate my breath. And they would have been like, cool, I don't know what that means, but okay. It must be an artisty kind of thing. We're the audience, they're there for me. <laughs> but that whatever that little nugget in my brain was that like the show must go on, you got to keep going. You don't want to seem like you're failing at something, whatever that was, but I didn't have a conscious thing except for maybe like, I just got to keep going. And I did not give myself permission and I totally could have. And the third song was fine. It wasn't any better, but it was all fine. And I just allow, and they were all super vulnerable songs too, as I tend to write in that style. And that's what people picked up on. No, what a beautiful voice. I heard that occasionally, but I also heard mostly your songs were so meaningful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And in the end, that's what it's all about anyway, is the connection that we make to people. But I sure did shoulda, coulda, woulda myself all night. <laughs> and I kept trying to go, nope, that's not helpful. Just take it. So I spent the evening regulating my nervous system <laughs> by <laughs> going in the corner or sitting in the back. And my peacemaker, which is a Vegas nerve exercise where I do the live long and prosper sign and put fingers on either side of my ears. And I inhale and I take a long exhale on an H. <sighs> And really like two or three of those, I already feel my heart rate just from telling you the story, which increased telling you the story has already gone down a little bit. Already feel my voice get a little bit calmer as I'm talking to you, because that is the power (laughs) of concentrating and being conscious about breathing. (sighs) And so the reality is, whether you are a professional singer or not, we are often in situations where this idea of regulating our nervous system, which I think may be something that musicians pay more attention to than us average folk. And this would be a really great place for us average folk to pay attention because when we get triggered, my husband had a conversation last night with two of his brothers. If you know my husband, just that sentence that was a challenging conversation for him. 
conversations with his brothers, there's just always going to be an opportunity for somebody to trigger somebody in that conversation. And he leaned into many of those opportunities to get triggered. And so for the rest of the evening and well into the night, I woke up about 1.30 and he was still awake. He was, I think, trying to find ways to regulate his nervous system back to feeling okay, feeling normal, feeling equilibrium. And I think this idea of regulating our nervous systems through the power of our breath, both in preparation for something that we think has the possibility of going sideways so that it's much less likely to go sideways if we come in in a calm place and having given up all of our pre-existing stories about how it's going to go and we just come into it fresh with curiosity. And then after the fact, if things do go sideways or not as we would have liked them to go in a perfect world, then we have the opportunity to recalibrate. So can you do that again for our listeners and for those of us who are just listening and not also seeing us, there will be on YouTube a recording of this with both of us live so you can see us and see Julie doing this exercise if you would like to find it there. And for those who are just listening or reading, how does one do this? Okay, so I'm going to do this breath exercise and I'm going to follow it with a sound exercise. Probably the thing that people, one of the things we're uncomfortable with, whether you sing or not, is just your voice making a weird sound. (laughs) yep it's especially true for singers but i think true for everybody is you just gotta let your voice do what it wants to do and let it have the freedom to make sounds and weird sounds if it wants to Uh (laughs) so when i say the live long and prosper sign spock (laughs) i'm creating space between my middle finger and my ring finger and i am putting the middle finger behind my ear and the ring finger in front of my ear. And I am holding my jaw and letting my palms go down to my throat. So she's holding the sides of her face like maybe you would hold a little child's face. So her palms, her wrists are almost together, depending upon the length of your hands. Her wrists are almost together and at the bottom of her chin. And her ring fingers are on the sides of her face towards her nose. I've got to do it myself. And her long finger, her middle finger, is behind each ear. And I can feel my thumb kind of encompass around the sides of my neck. And so the inhale is through the nose, slow and long. The exhale is going to be as long as you're comfortable with, you just want to be comfortably out of air to take another breath. Everybody's lung capacity is different so that there's no shoulds in here. But whenever you're just comfortable, take another inhale. And we're exhaling on an H, kind of the Darth Vader sound. It's not forceful. It's really easy, like letting almost as if you were hissing the air out. Okay, so I'm going to inhale through the nose real slow. And and then I'm just going to let my voice moan however it wants to. And then a way to sustain energy is to try and do it on a pitch. Lower pitches are easier because that's where we talk. Your voice will just want to live there. So wherever you speak, the way to know your optimal speaking pitch is if someone says, do you like strawberries? And you go, that's your pitch. Mm -hmm. Just until you're comfortably out of air. And I did that for three hours because this came in really handy when I got my first tattoo a couple of weeks ago. Oh my goodness. And they said, try your best to regulate your breath. And no matter how much I concentrate on inhale, exhale, what I found is when you make sound, you have to inhale. Your inhale, exhale without sound, you can try and be intentional about it. But if you're in pain, (laughs) it it will flex. It will change. It will. (laughs) What I noticed is whether I was humming with the music or just moaning and I told my tattoo artist I said I'm going to be doing this she said that's totally fine 
Well, I knew it wasn't going to feel like puppies licking me. I did not have a concept of what that would feel like. And then my brain really didn't have a concept of what that would feel like for three and a half hours. Uh, helped a lot. I may ask, you don't have to answer. What is your tattoo? Well, Janine, <laughs> favorite place, the beach. Oh, there's seagrass. My gosh. Ocean and clouds and pelicans. That's and, amazing. Isn't it? Yes. There's a little video of it on my Instagram page if you want to see it up close. Awesome. And so if somebody wants to find you on Instagram, how do they do that? At Julie Dean Sings. At Julie Dean Sings, S-I-N-G-S. Awesome. All right. So that link and many others will be in the show notes for today's show. I was going to see if there was going to be a great place to play the full song that Julie and her partner, Keith Serpa, did for our show. The song is called Becoming, right? It's called I'm Beginning to Think. I'm Beginning to Think. And there hasn't really been a great place. So there will be a link to that song as well. <sighs> Julie, this has been magnificent. And I think the longest episode <laughs> I ever recorded. <laughs> we have a tendency to talk a lot. <laughs> we do. We're good talkers in our family. We like to catch up. That's right. I really hope everyone has enjoyed this as much as we have. And I'm going to bring this show to a close. Before I do, I want to give you an opportunity. Was there anything you were hoping to talk about today or anything that you wanted to bring in that we haven't had an opportunity to? Nope. I was just along for the ride. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed being here. Awesome. <sighs> I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Anxiety.